Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 22nd, 2024, the Can Putin Be Stopped edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course, by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hi. <laughs> howdy. Hi. We start to say hi how and howdy do. all at once. How do? Or how do? How do, John? Uh, howdy, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hi. I'm going to just stick with hi. Yeah. This why. week... On the GabFest, the suspicious death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the fall of a Ukrainian city, the failure of Ukraine aid funding in Congress. Can Putin be stopped? How can he be stopped? Then another mega verdict against Donald Trump will hurt him financially. Will it hurt him politically? We will discuss. And then the frightening, appalling implications of an Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are unborn children. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we have really exciting news. We have a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on March 27th. We're going to be at the Hamilton Live, a new venue for us. Very exciting. Uh, On March 27th at 730, and there'll be a pre-show cocktail party for people who want to buy tickets to that. then we'll also get you into the the show itself. Uh, it's going to be wonderful. We love doing our live shows. We've done a whole bunch in DC that have been great. We would love to see you there. Tickets are going to go on sale this Friday. So tomorrow, today, if you're listening on Thursday, they're not going to go on sale till Friday. They'll be at slate.com slash Gabfest live. But again, that's, that'll be at the Hamilton live on Wednesday, March 27th at 7.30. Please join us if you can in Washington, D.C. Even if we don't know that Vladimir Putin had opposition leader Alexei Navalny killed last week, we do know that he killed Navalny. Putin's regime waged a really undisguised campaign of terror and violence against the charismatic charismatic opposition leader, For a decade, it attempted to poison him repeatedly. It trumped up charges against him. It imprisoned him in one of the worst places on earth. And Navalny's death comes at a moment of triumphant impunity for Putin. The Russian economy hasn't collapsed despite predictions to the contrary. American conservatives have derailed aid to Ukraine, uh, in effect doing Trump's bidding to do Putin's bidding. The Ukrainian army is losing ground. Putin's henchmen are committing acts of political violence around the world without any punishment. Just this week, a Russian military defector was assassinated in Spain, the latest in a string of suspicious deaths, poisonings, falls out windows that befall people who oppose Putin. So, John, why was Navalny important? What made him a critical figure in in post-Soviet Russia? I mean, as you said, he was charismatic. He dared to do what no one else would do, which is stand up to Putin. Um, And he had a kind of social media set of skills that poked fun, poked at Putin. It it was cleverly uh, uh, um, conveyed to people about basically the corruption of Putin and the, and, and Putin's lavish lifestyle and um, you know, how Putin was selling out um, the Russians. And then there's the dramatic story of surviving, um, the poisoning attempt, 
um, which, which by the way, his wife almost died from as well. And then the fact that he had, and this, we'll get into the politics of this in, in a moment, but in the face of the obvious jailing that was headed his way, he went back to Russia. I mean, he had extraordinary personal courage, um, which is always a compelling story. And it's a compelling story when it's on behalf of other people. So it's courage and self-sacrifice. Maybe those two things are always involved, but you could imagine having courage just for your own personal gain. Um, But it had all of the elements of the things that we usually associate with heroism, um, which makes Trump's behavior in response to his death tell us so much about Trump's internal character, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, and it's just so scary to imagine, to to see this regime that's like utterly crushing to any kind of dissent and that Putin can't have any kind of opposition and that he actually figured out how to make someone die who was trying to play that role. I mean, there's just something um, harrowing about that in a way that feels, especially with the backdrop of Ukraine and knowing how that war is going and the... Um, strides that Russia and Putin are making toward winning, or at least in part winning that war. So you feel the kind of triumphalism on two fronts. It's really alarming. Why do you guys think it is that Putin has been so able to get away with political murder at the scale? I don't think, I can't recall in our lifetime, I'm sure the U.S. government killed a lot of people and, and maybe the U.S. government is, is guilty of this. I mean, this is, this. I sound like Trump now. We've done it just the same yes, stuff. exactly. Yeah, Trump said, there are a lot but, of killers. But, we yeah, have a yeah, lot of kidder- yeah. killers. But but the the way that anyone who has spoken out against Putin ends up dead in England, they fall out of a building, they end up poisoned, they get shot in in uh, Spain. You have Gaty plane blows up. Yeah, your plane your plane blows up, um, and there's there's no appears to be literally no consequences to Putin for doing this. And and it's all been pretty documented. Bellingcat in particular has done this extraordinary job documenting these who is doing it and how it's happening and yet no punishment to speak of. I mean, that's what it means to be an autocrat. And also economically, Russia is weathering the sanctions, right? In large part because of um, China and other countries that are just not participating. There just hasn't been a real cost to the Russian people, like a real sustained, terrible economic blow. Right. Well, there has been a real cost to the Russian people. It's just it's been hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed and wounded and families immiserated by the loss of loved ones. But because those people are don't matter in the scheme to to Putin in Putin's eyes or aren't aren't the deciders, do not shape the political system, don't shape what happens, that it hasn't had a cost to the leadership, the oligarchy and the, the the elites of Russia, at least. Right. A lot of them disproportionately come from places like Chechnya that have little political power. Why do you think it is that the expectation that Putin would collapse, that the Russian state would collapse, has turned out to be so grossly wrong? Is it just that China and states in the Middle East and Iran have propped up Russia? Or is there something we fundamentally misunderstood about the nature of Putin's support? I mean, he's waging this war that's causing vast suffering for his own people. It is not, it, it, it's not great for Ukraine. Ukraine is in trouble in this war, but Ukraine, you know, has held Russia off. Russia has not achieved the gains it sought in the war. And yet Putin is, is more powerful, more untouchable, uh, without any opposition 
than he's ever been. It's such a great question. What gravitational pull did not kick in that that the U.S. was expecting? And part of it is Emily's point about, you know, the sanctions that were supposed to be crippling kind of were, but Putin found other markets. And also those sanctions rely on the on the, you know, good behavior of U.S. allies. Some countries are, you know, they're banking. They were kind of fastidious at first about uh, making sure there were no transfers going to benefit the Russians. And then after a little while, they kind of stopped being so vigilant. Um, so there's been slack in, in holding up the second the, the sanctions against Russia, which means it'll be interesting on Friday when Biden announces the new round of sanctions against Russia, whether any will target these secondary countries um, for... You know, their obvious help in these transactions that Emily's talking about, sometimes which bounce through three or four different countries before it goes back to benefit Russia. Um, but that's a super difficult regime to kind of stay on top of if you're the United States, because you have to, you know, enforce it all along the line, which requires tending a lot of diplomatic accounts, which, by the way, is really difficult when there's the actual war going on and you can't get money to Ukraine because of what's happening in the house. And then you've got what's happening in the Middle East. And then you got China. Like it's a complicated thing to punish the Russians, um, which is, by the way, an argument a lot of Republicans have made who are in support of funding Ukraine, uh, which is give the Ukrainian soldiers the weapons to punish the Russians. Like they're the ones who, if anybody can beat back Putin um, for what he's doing, it's the Ukrainians. Right. What What is it? that you guys think we can do. So there are these, there seem to be sort of three tracks. One is what I would call almost the nuclear option, which is to confiscate hundreds of billions of dollars in Russian assets, to essentially take Russian money that has floats around the financial system and seize it and, you know, impoverish potentially oligarchs and Putin himself by taking their money. And that would be that would be a kind of declaration of war against the kind of way that the financial system has worked. It would it would it would be very risky for the United States to do that because one of the greatest assets the U.S. has in the world is that it's the arbiter of the world financial system. And if people don't think that their assets are safe in that financial system anymore, something terrible could happen with the dollar. That's one. Another is to arm Ukraine, as John just you just said so eloquently, and let the let the Ukrainians do the damage. And the third is some inchoate set of other sanctions. It appears to me like that that one is off the table. And so it really is. And the and these sanctions don't seem to work. So it really comes down to getting the Ukrainians funding. And and yet the Russians, uh, the, the Russians, the, the Republicans have abdicated that. Right. It does make that choice right now just seem unconscionable. Like it's hard. I am having trouble. I mean, I was having trouble last week understanding how Trump and the Republicans have talked themselves into this weirdly dovish position on Putin and Russia when, I mean, just like when Ronald Reagan kind of refounded the modern Republican Party on the fight against, um, I know it was the communist Soviet Union, and that was a different moment in history, but still not to take this threat seriously just seems so bizarre, especially when you lay out those options. The idea that at this moment, um, the United States would refuse to um, fund Ukraine just seems crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. Immoral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, well, and while we're on that topic, although we should go back to your original question, David, but what struck me as I was thinking about this 
um, this morning is exactly what you say, Emily. But then like taking one other step backwards, which goes back to Trump's initial response to this, which was not just not to uh, say anything astringent about Putin and not to recognize the humanity and have any empathy with Navalny. It was to um, cloak himself in you know, he he would he just said Navalny's name to ca- to characterize what's happening to him, Donald Trump in America in these court cases against him. And and if you wanted to measure the distance between Trump's reaction and kind of the reaction that's in the tradition with normal humanity, I don't know that there's a measuring stick that can can quantify that distance. I mean, think about Navalny's life, personal sacrifice for an idea for other people. And in the face of absolute certain danger and death, as he says in his documentary, when they kill me. I mean, he knew he was going to die, and yet he sacrificed himself for these ideas of liberty and freedom and self-determination. And for Trump to turn that into a personal story about him, Trump, (laughs) is just like the perfect, scientifically perfect obverse of what Navalny's life was about. But if you're an American president or running for president, this is an opportunity to talk about those ideals and those freedoms, which America was founded on and which everybody's supposedly striving for every day here. There's this huge moment for any candidate to step into this and say, this is what this person represented alone in a cell in the middle of nowhere, Russia, the very same things we're fighting for every day and imperfectly trying to achieve. Like there is just this huge moment that, um, is out there for the taking, um, which I'm sort of surprised. I mean, Biden has talked about it, but in this sort of like he asserts it as if everybody understands what's going on. But this is not just it's not just a story about Russia. It's a story about ideas and ideals that are totally up for grabs all over the world. And that doesn't mean the U.S. has to spend all of its money trying to put out all of these fires. But it is a moment for someone to come forward and talk about these ideals in a way that is connected to Americans lives. I mean, this is where you get to almost the age issue with Biden, that Biden has become such a poor tribune of these ideals that he's just not a great spokesman for the nation anymore. And he's, and they don't trust him to be a spokesman for the nation. And that's a, that's a real problem at a moment like this, when it, when a kind of the clarion moral clarion call that is warranted, that is justified is it's, he, he probably makes, but it just, he does it so poorly. He does it so fragilely, uh, awkwardly, and nobody really wants to see it. It's it's a problem. And it's also true that Trump has put this cast iron lid on his party, whereas where any senator might make a stirring call towards these themes, the word tribune is precisely right, David, and yet they can't because the leader of the Republican Party is um, explicitly and implicitly pro-Putin, and therefore a senator who gave such a speech would seem to be criticizing Trump. I mean, the, it, it must be the most successful dark arts campaign in our lifetime, what Putin has done to Trump. I don't, I don't think, I, I've, I've come around to the belief that I don't think it, that Putin's interference in the 2016 election, that didn't win it. That was not, it wasn't that Trump won because of that. Trump won because of a variety of factors. I'm sure that helped. But Trump's sense that Putin was on his side. Trump's even the fact that tr- Putin appeared to be interfering on Trump's behalf in that election has endeared Putin to Trump in some way. There's something about Putin that Trump crushes on. That Trump has a kind of a, almost an erotic fixation with Putin, and it has made it has taken the Republican Party, which had has 
stood up kind of admirably against communism for so long, as you were pointing out, Emily, it stood up so long for freedom and, you know, was on the right side of that argument for generations and made it into this, this pathetic worm on the ground, unable to do anything and sacrificing national interests for some kind of partisan interest to, to, to placate their great leader. It's just a moral tragedy and sickening. Right. I mean, we should add in Tucker Carlson's interview of Unbelievable. Putin, which goes along with all of this and just like the bizarre falling for all of the fraud, you know, whatever, the Potemkin village that Putin presented. But I mean, I also think with Trump that there's just an affinity there. Like he's excited. He's turned on by Putin's strongman act. And I also wonder if the fact that part of Navalny's campaign against Putin was to point out all the corruption, that is also something obviously Trump would kind of glory in, right? Someone figuring out how to kind of swindle and build these huge buildings or this like enormous estate for himself. Like that's hardly something Trump is going to object to. And somehow it just all adds up to this um, admiration and fealty, which, yeah. And then the idea that it's leading the entire party in that direction. It, I know. I just, it's amazing. Um, in the national review, there's a great piece. We need to talk about Tucker by um, Jeffrey, I think Blehar. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right, but it, um, it, sensibly, calmly walks through not just the Putin interview, Putin steamrolled over a, a lot of people, um, but the the weird visit and the escalating um, Baroque weirdness of Carlson's various trips to the supermarket, uh, the subway and so forth. Um, it's, it's worth a read. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments from us on every episode of the GapFest. We're going to have a bonus segment for you today. We're going to talk about the effort to undermine Joe Biden in the Michigan Democratic primary by other Democrats in order to get him to change his position on the Gaza war. And we're going to talk to a Michigan journalist about uh, his coverage of of that issue. And uh, we'll get a, another local perspective. We loved having a local perspective on last week's show. We're going to try it again this week. But it's just for Slate Plus members, this segment. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. And if you're not, consider becoming a member. Sign up. You get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest, as well as other Slate podcasts. You get special discounts to our live show, like the one we're coming up on March 27th here in D.C. You don't hit the paywall on the Slate site. You get a lot more. So again, if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to Slate.com slash Plus to become a member today. That's Slate.com slash Plus. Judge Arthur Angeron gave the Trump family the business this week. He issued a brutal ruling and opinion in a New York civil case. New York Attorney General Tish James had charged the Trump organization with civil fraud, accusing Trump, his children, and his minions at the Trump organization of inflating asset values to win favorable treatment by banks and insurance companies. Angeron fined Trump $355 million plus interest. He also barred Trump from leading any company in New York for three years. Uh, his sons also got a similar treatment. This is the third mega civil judgment against Trump in recent months, two in the Eugene Carroll defamation cases, and now this one. So, Emily, why did he lose so comprehensively uh, in front of Judge Angeron? What was he found to have done? I mean, this is this giant 
basically scheme, kind of fraud, where you, he, the Trump organization was accused of inflating its assets um, and thus defrauding the banks and um, insurance companies that were that they were working with and making lots of extra money. The critique of this case has always been that there weren't victims, right? I mean, this is what Trump keeps talking about, that the banks also in the end made There money. were victims, by the way. I'm going to get to that in a second, but go ahead. Oh, good. Yes, I'm glad you're, you said that. Uh, but this ginormous sum is about the amount of extra money that Trump made with these huge inflationary estimates. Uh, and so that's what the judge was doing, was trying to penalize um, the company and the Trump family as the owners of that company for amounts of money that were akin to the extra amounts of money that they made. I'm going to just bl- briefly retort that defense. I think there are two victims here. Um, this is an, an analogous to drunk driving, I think, which is you can drive drunk all the time and you don't hit anyone. There's no victim. But it's still a crime. We still make it a crime because the act of driving Trump exposes all sorts of people to risk in the system. And the fact that Trump has inflated his asset values has exposed the people who have invested with him and the insurance companies to a risk that they shouldn't be exposed to, that they wouldn't have been exposed to had he not been fraudulent. It makes the financial system less safe. Uh, it's just danger. It makes the system much more dangerous for everyone. Turns out that nothing blew up. No one was hit. But that doesn't mean there wasn't risk. That's number one. But there are also actual victims. And the victims are the people, the other firms that didn't get the loans from banks that made those loans to Trump. Because the banks made the loans to Trump because they thought, oh, Trump has these assets. They're worth this a much. It's, it's an attractive investment. The, the investment that was next in line, the, the person who had, who had the slightly lower asset value uh, because they didn't make up their asset value, didn't get that loan, or they got that loan on worse terms and paid more for it. And it's very hard. They, no, they, you can't identify that victim. It's not They haven't been literally defrauded in a way that you can measure it, but they are victims nonetheless. And that's a, a victimhood that's spread out through the system. And it's just that Trump got to put himself, as you can imagine, in the front of the line to get favorable treatment. And the person that was one step behind them in line got worse treatment as a result. Can I, I love, I love both of those points on the second one. Is that essentially an assertion of victimhood based on, as you said, can't prove that it exists, but you can prove all the component parts, which is to say that lenders don't have an inexhaustible amount of money to right. lend, right. you know? And so it's, it's, you can build your case based on some knowable facts, uh, which then back you into that assertion. I like that. The other thing is you just can't have a system operating with everybody hugely inflating their assets. (laughs) That's just not going to work. And of course, not everybody is going to get caught. But the everyone does it defense just cannot work in this um, in this case, especially when you're talking about inflationary uh, amounts that are of great magnitudes that go on over time that are so well documented, et cetera. And I think that's why this judge made the ruling of actual culpability before he sat down and listened to all the testimony about the damages, right? Like he decided that um, months ago and really the proceedings that were um, public uh, and that Trump treated with incredible contempt, they were all about the amount of money that was going to be taken and the judge was really peeved by the total lack of remorse or responsibility taken by the Trump and the Trump organization. Really annoyed by that. Although totally unsurprising, but uh, 
I'm sure Trump could have reduced this penalty a significant amount had had he just been like, you know what, you're right. It was uh, we made some mistakes, and probably it would have been much smaller. But of course, Trump is constitutionally incapable of that. Insofar as Trump believes in a constitution, that is what he. That's the constitution he believes in. You know the corrosive effect of Trump's. You know there was this this kind of behavior by was originally seen by people like Ann Althaus and others as like. Trump's genius, like he gets around the system and that's that's going to make him a great president because he's got this special genius. Um, But it's just straight up old fraud and the corrosive knock on effects of that kind of behavior, either from him specifically or in general. It's a kooky thing that people were like, oh, you know, no one got hurt. So there's no crime, no foul or no harm, no foul. Um, It's just nutty. And we've seen, obviously, the way in which that has rippled out um, throughout politics in American life now because of the permission structure that applauding line crossing behavior, you know, encourages more of it, encourages people to lower standards. Um, so this was essentially an assertion of like the reassertion of a standard, which is basically the role the Trump, the courts have played with Trump all along, right? It goes back to if you're famous, they let you do it. Um, actually, the courts, at least in some instances with him, have not. I do think this is a, a mistake we all make with politicians we support, which is to take their actual worst qualities and attribute virtue to them because they get something done. And I, I go back to like Bill Clinton with this, that Bill Clinton had this quality of being able to kind of lie uh, very effectively. He could tell people in front of him what they wanted to hear. And people said, oh, he's a marvelous communicator. What a great communicator he is. He really makes you feel something. And yes, he did. Yes, that is true. He would make you feel, but he, in part, he did it by, by performing an act of emotional jujitsu on you and, and fake, faking an empathy that you then kind of went along with. And it was magic if you supported what he was doing, but it was also, it was also, if you didn't, you could you could see why people found it sinister. I'm not equating, by the way. I'm not saying that the that what Trump does and what Clinton does did are the same. I'm just saying that that it is not Trump is not unique, and that that supporters find virtue in their vices. What that reminds me of is when I went back and read the Book of Virtues. I didn't reread the Book of Virtues, but just God, can you imagine return? having to read it twice? You would have read the Book of Virtues twice. No, no, I read even I, the Bill first Bennett, time, who wrote it, didn't read it. Twice. <laughs> I read it the first time it came out. Um, but the premise of that book is that the public behavior that you're talking about, David, um, that easy shilly shallying around the truth was so corrosive to the larger culture that even if there was no specific crime and no one was particularly harmed, just the public display of, um, of Clinton's, you know, malleability with the truth, which, by the way, is nowhere near what tr- Trump has created and done repeatedly, was like it was a threat to the Western world. And uh, that's obviously no longer the case with people like that. Can we talk about just actually paying all this money? I'm pretty fascinated by this. I mean, it's going to add up in the end to north of $500 million between the interest and the um, actual amounts and including the E. Jean Carroll um, damages awards. And that is just a lot of money, no matter if you're a billionaire or not. Trump is now asking for an extension on paying some of it. Tish James, I I, I mean, I, I guess the court could prevent this, but um, Tish James, the attorney general in New York, has said, I'm going to seize his assets if he doesn't pony up this money. I don't see how he wiggles out of this one because 
while you're appealing, you have to put down, you have to secure a bond. And it's also a little hard for me to imagine who he's going to find who's going to actually like secure this bond for him as opposed to having put up his own assets, though I guess there'll be some oh, sucker out there. Someone will secure this bond because on the it's a great bet. Imagine if he gets president, becomes president again, what favors you could call in for having done that. Right. It's just that it's so much money, but I'm sure you're right. And then the other question I'm interested in is whether he tries to use um, money raised for his campaign to pay for this the way he's done with his legal fees. Can I just, somebody pointed this out, and I really apologize for not giving credit to the person who did, but the enormous transfer of wealth that is going on between Republican donors giving to various committees and to Trump, which then gets, then goes to pay uh, Trump's lawyers who are probably most of them, or at least their firms, are filled with lots of Democrats. So remember when the trial lawyers used to be like the great attack against Democrats because they supported Democrats? Like, this is not that, of course, because it's Trump, it's Republican donors supporting trial lawyers, but it is an amazing transfer of of wealth from these small dollar donors or large dollar donors into the pockets of law firms. We haven't touched on the question that probably most of our listeners care most about, which is what impact, if any, might this civil fraud verdict have on the election? I think the the more people who are kind of grasping say, oh, it punctures Trump's reputation as a great businessman, and that will have an effect on the election. I doubt it myself. There's the other side of it, which is, oh, it confirms his persecution narrative. So the people who support him will be like, yes, look how he's being persecuted. Do you think, John, that this verdict is likely to play in any meaningful way in the election. First of all, both of the reactions that you say are probably true. And we should come up with a like Mad Libs for the kind of analysis you have to do with Trump behavior, because there is, you know, there's the there's the reaction within the MAGA base, which is to see this as one more level of, of persecution. There's the the reaction within the Republican part of the party that is, um, MAGA adjacent plays footsie with MAGA, the kind of what I talked about, that cast iron lid on Republicans who under normal circumstances would talk about the rule of law, would talk about fairness, you know, talk about abiding by the rules and all that, but can't because of Trump and how it plays with that group. Um, And then there's independents or people who really aren't paying attention. They've forgotten about the Trump years in a lot of ways. They're living their lives and they'll, they'll kind of come back online closer to the election and they really only matter in about seven states. I think that in that group, which will end up probably de- determining the election, I think there is a tonnage that this adds to um, that uh, partially the tonnage is why they tune out the news um, because they're just sick of all this hearing all of this. And uh, but I do think in the end, when you add all of this together, um, all you know, it, 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 all of the different courtrooms in which he's lost, whether it's lying about the election or his personal finances. And we should note, by the way, he didn't just say, hey, this house is really worth 10 million and like sort of fudge it. He said physical spaces that were only 3,000 were 30,000. Like that's not a matter of opinion. That is, those are the rules of space and time. Um, uh, Anyway, um, I think at the end of all of the accumulated behavior when people are reminded when they're paying attention, I think this... um, is not nothing. Uh, but I also think it requires an accumulation of everything else and not on its own will it have any particular strong impact. I mean, doesn't it also matter in terms of its effect on Trump? Like it will just, I know that he's already a wounded bear staggering around with all the criminal charges, but the kind of indignity of this, the amount of money, the kind of 
desperate fury, all of that, like it just gets amped up, right? I mean, this is his self-image, his business, New York, everything. Isn't that such a smart point? I think that one of the things that Nikki Haley has done a little bit to irritate him, and you could imagine artificial intelligence reverse engineering exactly the kind of attack that would play to the point you're making, Emily, which is for a woman who has who has been successful in business, making fun of him for his depancing um, in New York, you could imagine driving him through all 47 floors of his building's ceilings. Um, so I think that makes a great point. And then that is displayed in public. Nikki Haley's case at the moment essentially is, look at the way he's reacting to me. You don't want that in the Oval Office. He is incapable of handling this moment. And he's done these like 10 different crazy things as a result. And that's just not the kind of mindset you want in the White House. The problem with that attack is, those aren't new behaviors. Those are behaviors that she supported in his cabinet, that she supported in 2016. So she has undermined her own case by her previous behavior. But uh, what you're talking about, Emily, is is an attack that gets at his ego and that then causes him to act out in a way that those independents, once they're paying attention, will have fresh evidence of the the, um, things that they didn't like about him before. And, And that's a really good point. So before we end, just a reminder that coming up, we'll have the Stormy Daniels trial, the sort of uh, campaign fraud case is coming up in New York. That's the first criminal case that Trump's going to face. And it's scheduled to start relatively soon, March 25th, that trial is supposed to start. So it's very likely there will be a verdict in that case before the election, barring some set of delays that don't anticipate. And then I guess also, Emily, we're waiting to hear the next step in the Georgia case, whether Fannie Willis, uh, the the uh, prosecuting attorney there is going to somehow be disqualified from prosecuting that case and how it will proceed if she is disqualified. Right. And then also we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court about whether it's going to take the appeal from Trump on his incredibly broad immunity claim. And that affects the timing of the prosecution of the January 6 charges that Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, is bringing. Okay, let's go on to the frost babies, the ice babies, frozen babies. You can take your babies neat or you can take your babies on ice. What did the (laughs) Alabama Supreme Court rule on Friday? How nuts was it? I think I need to disassociate myself (laughs) from all the jokes you were just making. They weren't Um, jokes. It's like they're just they're not fucking around. They're saying they're saying these two extremely cold cells are are babies. So you know? Right. Okay. So the Alabama Jack Frost, the Jack Frost case. (laughs) Um, Okay. The Alabama Supreme Court said um, that the Alabama Constitution protects um, embryos, which it called extra uterine children. The logic of this decision is that there's a clause in the Alabama Constitution that says that the state's public policy is to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. And so then the justices relied on previous decisions they've made, which said that the word child um, encompasses fetuses. And then they said, well, why shouldn't it also encompass an embryo just because it's not in a uterus? It shouldn't be discriminated against. I mean, effectively, that was the logic. This ruling comes in a wrongful death suit. What happened was that there were 
people who had, um, you know, for fertility treatment reasons, frozen their embryos. Because often what happens is that if you're having a fertility problem, they harvest a bunch of eggs from the person who wants to be the mother, and then they fertilize the eggs. I mean, yes. And then they fertilize the eggs, they create embryos, and they only implant a couple of the embryos um, because you don't want to be pregnant with lots of Um, potential fetuses. That's like more risky. And then they save the rest of them, at least for some amount of time. So in this particular um, facility, somebody came in, picked up a jar. It was super, super cold. And so they dropped the jar, um, destroying the embryos. That is now the basis for a wrongful death suit. And I mean, I don't understand how this kind of assisted reproduction continues in the state of Alabama. Already, the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham said, we can't do this anymore because the liability is um, potentially enormous. I mean, first of all, you have the civil liability. It seems like now destroying any embryo could lead to a wrongful death suit. But also, the court did not rule out criminal charges. And so we seem to be in a universe in Alabama where um, if you destroyed an embryo or had anything to do with it, you could face a murder charge. Now, that's not currently the law in Alabama, but just the fact that they didn't close the door is enough potential liability for, I think, these clinics are just going to have to say, I'm sorry, but we can't do this anymore. Um, And that's a really sad result that's going to affect thousands of families in Alabama. Who want to have children, which is the goal that most people who claim to support these laws want to advance. Is is this an appealable uh, decision, Emily? It's a state Supreme Court, so it's the last word in Alabama, but can it be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on some grounds? No, I don't see how you possibly could appeal it because it's the state Supreme Court interpreting the state constitution. That is the job of the state Supreme Court. And also Dobbs opened this very door, uh, the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade in 2022. So no. Can I piggyback on that, though, Emily, when you say Dobbs opened the door for this, open the door for what Alabama did, uh, making it harder to challenge it? Or is there a way in which Dobbs offers a route for what Alabama did to affect other states. So Dobbs makes this ruling much more possible. Um, Previously, there have been prosecutions um, of women under what are called fetal homicide statutes, where like you weren't allowed to use drugs during pregnancy. And the same theory was that um, the fetus was a child. But we never had any kind of application um, of that idea in a setting of, you know, embryos or IVF. And I think what's really going on here in terms of tipping the balance is that in Dobbs, Justice Alito talks about states being able to defend the rights of unborn children and doesn't balance that at all against um, the lives or health of women, of mothers, of people who are pregnant. And so this that kind of opens the door to... um, elevating the rights of um, any kind of embryo or fetus that the state defines as a child. Yeah, super thank you. Because I, when I read that in the coverage and maybe even said it out of my own mouth on on television, I thought, oh, well, what, it, what that means is that it just emboldened people who want to take more aggressive views of when life begins. But, it, but, but now you've explained how there's an actual door that opens. Thank you. Emily, what do you think are the other coming impacts of fetal personhood activism? If 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 the, we start having rulings that babies are babies in utero, embryos, fetuses in utero are have the same rights as children 
who are born and then that potentially frozen embryos, frost babies also have the same rights. Um, what kind of legal craziness can result? What do, are we going to have murder charges? Are we going to have neglect charges for pregnant women? Are we going to have, maybe there's an abuse charge to be put against someone who freezes an embryo. Like if you freeze an embryo, isn't that like, that can't be legal to freeze a person without their consent. Yes, I think those questions bizarrely are on the table. I mean, remember, we've had like fetal homicide statutes and wrongful death suits for fetuses in utero um, before. Like that's the law that the Alabama court was relying on. What's novel here is taking it into the context of an embryo that is not in utero and obviously is at such an early stage of life. Um, But yeah, I mean, now we are facing those questions and people who really believe in fetal personhood to this degree, like that is a set of questions that they kind of have to answer. I also think, you know, this is one of those forks in the road. Like you can live in a state in which you can basically no longer do IVF in the state in vitro fertilization. I mean, I, I again, I just, I don't see how the Alabama legislature can um, fix this if, if it, even if it wanted to, or um, you can, create a political momentum to try to stop this, right? I mean, when you take causes like this to an extreme, often there's a backlash. Um, How that will play out in a state like Alabama is kind of hard to say because Alabama is a state where the majority of voters really um, do want to severely restrict abortion. There aren't that many states like that where that's really the case, but it is the case in Alabama. Now, I imagine that most voters didn't actually want this result, but I'm not sure how you unwind it. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. One of the things that's going to happen with uh, artificial intelligence is that we are going to be able to run scenarios like the one I'm describing. Imagine if you put the energy behind this ruling um, and the various judges and their belief in the kind of direct line between Christ teachings and policy. And you said, now apply that mindset to children when they are born into the world. And what would that look like? Because if you look at the Annie Casey Foundation's um, ranking of the states that treat children the best based on low birth weight babies, children without health insurance, child and teen deaths per 100,000, um, and over uh, and obesity, um, Alabama is the sixth worst. Um, so you could run the scenario and say, but what would it look like if Alabama took all of this energy they have on the em- embryos front and aimed it at babies? What would the what would life look like for Alabamians? Yeah. And this is a pattern among states with very restrictive abortion laws, right? That they tend to be quite punishing toward people who want to have families who need help doing that, you know, income support, et cetera. You tend to have higher rates of maternal mortality. There's just like a disconnect here in terms of what it means to protect life and help people. I'm sure I've said this probably seven times on the Gabfest since we've been doing the show for so long, but the political aphorism that I remember more than any other ever is Barney Frank's line, which is that Republicans believe life begins at conception and ends at birth. And there's so much truth to that when it comes to the, to this issue. And just, just a couple of quick final thoughts for me. One is, is that this is another example where uncertainty is the, I don't know if it's the goal of the law, but it certainly is the effect of the law. And, and do- we've seen again and again that doctors will not, cannot abide uncertainty because the downside risk to them of losing their practice is so profound, losing their license, 
uh, for for something they do because they're uncertain about the what the law is is so enormous that they just won't do it. And so, as you say, Emily, even if they you know think they can continue to do IVF and like there are protections, they're just not going to take that risk because what if they're the one that the state uses as the exemplar to prosecute for because they destroyed one embryo while implanting it and that was you know that was an act of murder. They they just won't do it. Um, and so, so the, the uncertainty is part of it. And the, the other thing I just want to actually ask you, Emily, in closing is one of the things that must be frustrating for the anti-abortion forces in the country is that abortion actually hasn't been affected as much as I think they expected it to be by what's happened in Dobbs because of the availability of medication abortions and the mailing of medication abortion drugs across state lines. And there's a great story in the Times today about the uh, did you write that story? No, you didn't write that story. No, I didn't write that story, but it's about doctors who I wrote about last year. And Pam Bellick did a great job yeah. with the story today. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the number of abortions nationwide has actually risen and we're seeing thousands and thousands of pills being mailed into red states. Um, I mean, eventually there'll be litigation over that. And yes, that's all correct. I mean, I often wonder about, you know, these like fears of liability and risk aversion from professionals, from doctors and lawyers. But in this Alabama case, it's pretty direct. I mean, what happened here were um, the people whose embryos these were, the married couples, they actually had a contract that these embryos would be destroyed after five years. Like that was part, and that is often true about people who freeze their embryos. They want them for a certain amount of time and then um, that's a choice they make. And and they still sued for wrongful death. And so, um, you know, when you- th- <laughs> it's Wrongful death is just too soon. When you, when you think about that way, like it really does seem like there's just liability all over the place for the clinics here. Um, and you don't have to get anywhere near criminal charges to just think that that's cost prohibitive. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having your icy cocktail on the rocks, um, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, it's another uh, music related chatter re- related to, you know, we have some wonderful, um, singer-songwriters and musicians who listen to the Gab Fest. Our resident musician, political scientist, is uh, Max Kerman of the Arkells. Um, and uh, Josh Ritter uh, listens to the show, which I know only because he responded when I chattered about um, uh, his great song, Only a River, uh, which B- Bob Dylan sang. Um, but this one is about Alison Russell, who I don't even know if Alison listens to the Gab Fest. Um, but Alison Russell uh, just won her first Grammy for the Best American uh, Roots performance for her song, Eve Was Black. Um, and it has been embroiled, she's been embroiled in a tiny bit of controversy, which has nothing to do with her music. But during a routine um, legislative session in the Tennessee House, uh, um, someone proposed a resolution to honor Russell and the band Paramore. Um, and Basically, Russell's honor, honoring Russell was blocked, um, and it's not exactly clear why it was blocked and blah, blah, blah. That's not the story. Uh, it's the story of the moment. But the story I want to tell is that Alison Russell won this Grammy, and the first time I saw Alison Russell was when I was reporting um, a piece for Slate about the band Girly Man in 2011, and it was in a tiny, tiny little club um, on the eastern shore of Maryland. The club was like the size of the contemporary American bathroom. I mean, it was so small. And Allison was singing with a band called Poe Girl, which is great, which was a great band. Um, and they were opening for Girly Man. And 
Allison asked anybody in the audience if they had a place that she or some bandmates could crash for the night. So like, so poor, so like barely making it that you got to ask the audience if you can crash at their place. Um, and yet has stuck with it and made her music and is now reaping the rewards of all of that long, hard work, which is uh, what she did, but with but what all musicians do when they're creating their art, which is often super lonely and grim because it's really, really hard and lonesome. And so um, it's, an, it's an amazing story of perseverance on her part, but also a shout out to all the people out there who do this even without winning a Grammy. Ibaz, what's your chatter? Oh, I was sort of disconsolate yesterday as I was reading about the Supreme Court arguments in this case about whether the Biden administration's EPA can reduce air pollution that crosses from one state to another and creates harmful air pollution and smog. So basically, this is a rule that was trying to protect downwind states, including Connecticut, where I live, from the upwind states that are blowing all their industrial um air pollution into our states. And I mean, it just seems clear that the conservatives are going to say no um, in another deregulatory move. And the rationale seemed crazy to me. I mean, originally, the EPA's rule was supposed to apply to more than 20 states, then some federal appeals courts struck it down. So now it's only 11 states. And so then Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh was saying like, well, it's been sort of hollowed out. So who really needs this rule? But that I don't understand that as a logic for getting rid of it entirely. Like some protection against air pollution would still be better than zero protection. Anyway, it's a case. It, the, the rule is called the good neighbor rule, but it seems that now we will only have bad neighbors. <laughs> will State Farm still be there? Like a good neighbor. I want to chatter about something I noticed in Amsterdam. I was just in Amsterdam for a few days. I'd never been there. It was very interesting. I loved the Franz Hall's paintings. I loved the Vermeers. I liked the still lifes. I really enjoyed um, the art a lot. Uh, but maybe the thing that stuck with me most was something I saw called the closet bed, which was used in the pre-modern Netherlands. Oh, Emily's not I, I texted you about this oh wow keep talking so you can imagine like a pretty big desk like an executive's desk and on top of the desk instead of it being a flat surface is a big wooden box with doors and in that wooden box is a mattress and pillows and there these you people would sleep inside this box and the box was a way to keep warm the box also is less obtrusive than a whole bed and so it can be on the side of the room. But the weird part about the box is not none of that stuff. It's that it's only about four or five feet long. And so there is no possible way that a regular person, even a regular person in the 16th century or 18th century, uh, could stretch out in it. But the reason it existed is because a significant chunk of Dutch people for a significant length of time over centuries slept sitting up or they slept partially reclined. They leaned against pillows. They were propped up as they slept. And there seem to be various theories about why this is. Some One theory is, oh, it's that lying flat is associated with death. And so you don't want to sleep flat because it's too much like death. Um, another theory is that it helped with digestion uh, so that you would sleep sitting up to, to, to kind of give the the stomach a chance to do its business better. Um, and, and, you know, I was reading a little bit more about this and pointing out that actually in, mo in our modern era, there are 
plenty of times when people sleep kind of sitting up in hospital beds. Often people are sleeping, sitting up. Emily, why are you making that face? I found looking at these closet beds terrifying. Like it just seemed so uncomfortable. I couldn't imagine I have a lot of terrifying because of the closet beds though. Closet beds are Murphy beds. These are in chests, right? Okay. They're called closet beds. They're like really small and constricted. But are you being, are you saying that you found them, because it was so claustrophobic to imagine sleeping enclosed or because you were because sleeping the sitting up, up. Yeah. the oh, sitting yeah. up yeah yeah no i it just made me really upset to imagine that like the norm for sleeping was sitting up and then yeah. people thought that that was healthier like i think i would have died i have so much trouble sleeping when i'm not lying down it just made me really anxious you know i've i've shifted from being a stomach and side sleeper to mostly being a back sleeper well, as I've gotten older, more healthy. Well, it's you're uh, but, still lying down. No, no, it's true, but it, but it, it, it is, it's. But now my head is more elevated because it's, my neck is more up on pillows. I just think it is. You actually can change your sleep habits more than you think you can. As somebody who has weirdly changed my sleep habit unconsciously over years, the, my point about Murphy bed versus chest bed is not mere pedancy because if it's a Murphy it's bed, definitely if, mere pedancy. If it comes, I know from, you. If it comes, John. <laughs> No, no. Really? Two things. Two things can be possible. I can engage in mere pedancy constantly, but not in this instant. If it's a Murphy bed, it's floor to ceiling, right? So in that case, somebody who is not who is having to imagine what you're talking about is like, wait a minute, it's floor to ceiling. How is that cramped? But if it's a chest, then a chest is smaller, and a bed that comes out of the chest is is one in which a full person could not stretch out. I found it hugely claustrophobic, both for the the boxiness and also, yes, the thought of having to do that also gave me the heebie-jeebies. The Dutch, it was a really successful civilization. Listeners, you have thoughts on beds. You have thoughts on things that aren't beds as well. And you've sent them to us by emailing to us at gabfestatslight.com with your listener chatters. Please keep them coming. Something that you're talking about at your cocktail party, which is surely more interesting than a bed, um, but less interesting than a Supreme Court decision that will cause pollution across your state. So email them to us. And in the meantime, be inspired by Lee Underwood in Atlanta, who has our listener chatter this week. Hello, GapFest. This is Lee Underwood in Atlanta. My cocktail chatter is a story in the terrific new cycling publication, Escape Collective. It begins, who among us hasn't dreamed of simply stopping it all and riding away? What follows is an interview with Eric Bingesser, who did exactly that after COVID, ditching a day job to ride a 200-pound cargo bike around the country. Picking up cans, living off dumpster food, sleeping behind churches or in nudist camps, finding bullets and sex toys on the side of the road, and making friends with good old boys and giant pickups. The truth is that it definitely restored some of my faith in humanity, Eric concludes of his time on the road. Reading this interview did the same for me. The story's titled, Meet the Man Who Rode More New Roads Than Anyone Else, and it can be found at escapecollective.com. show for today. Our producer is Shana Roth. Our researcher this week is Kea Bajaj. Julie Hugan is on vacation. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio for Slate. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. For John Dickerson and David Plotz, I'm Emily Bazelon. We'll talk to you next week.
Hey, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, we have a special guest today. Zach Gorchow is the executive editor and publisher of Gongword News Service in Michigan. He also, amazingly, co-hosts a podcast with Shana Roth, our producer. Shana does a Michigan political podcast called Mishmash with Zach, so you should listen to that. So it's very exciting to have Shana's uh, co-conspirator on to talk about an interesting thing that's going on in Michigan. Um, so Zach, you, you cover Michigan politics deeply as part of your job. We don't, and, and we pay attention to it in these, these moments when it pops up and especially around the presidential election. And there's this fascinating thing that's happening ahead of your primary next week, where there's an effort to, I guess, more or less embarrass president Biden uh, by having people vote uncommitted in the Democratic primary where Biden is running unopposed or more or less unopposed next week. So can, can you talk a little bit about where the uncommitted movement comes from and what its purpose seems to be? Well, it's great to be here. Uh, the origins of it really are rooted in uh, the war between Israel and Hamas and President Biden's support for Israel's uh, conduct in that war to date. Michigan has one of the largest, maybe the largest population of Arab Americans outside of the Middle East, a suburb of Detroit called Dearborn, and an enclave city within Detroit called Hamtramck have large populations of Arab Americans. Can I, can I actually pause you there? How big is it? What, like, what's, what's the scale? Like, I, how many people? Great question. Uh, Dearborn is well over 100,000 people, uh, and Hamtramck is a smaller city. Uh, but you're talking, I believe the number that I've seen kicked around is, is well over 300,000 people, Arab Americans total within the state of Michigan. And so there is a lot of support uh, for the Palestinians and a lot of anger at Israel uh, for continuing to uh, be at war in Gaza and trying to uh, destroy Hamas uh, after the attack within Israel. And so because the United States under President Biden continues to support uh, Israel's war, there has been a call among uh, leading Arab American elected officials, like the mayor of Dearborn, various members of the state legislature. Probably the name your audience would be most familiar with is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian American uh, who has always been sort of an icon for the Palestinian cause. And they have decided to call for uh, Democratic voters, these are all Democratic officials I mentioned, to vote for uncommitted, to send a message to President Biden that he is at risk of losing Michigan in the November general election if he continues this course. Uh, Joe Biden won Michigan by about 154,000 votes over former President Donald Trump in 2020. And uh, certainly, if uh, a large enough contingent were to vote uncommitted uh, in this primary, it would raise the specter of whether that margin is, is tenuous. Arab Americans in Michigan have generally, I would say, for the last 20 years, voted heavily Democratic. It used to be a very politically competitive group, about 50-50. Uh, I believe George W. Bush in 2000 actually carried the city of Dearborn, if I recall. Um, but that changed very quickly after 9-11 and the Patriot Act, and these became overwhelmingly Democratic votes. 
That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.